0: We pray, Lord, for that vision, for that display of your glory in your church. I pray that as we labor in the Scriptures today, that we would grow in our capacities to understand our relationship with one another, with you, and how our relationships are to work out in the body of Christ. We need help as a church. We pray that you will deepen us and grow us. And Lord, as we come before the passage here today on which believers in the gospel differ so widely and significantly, Lord, I pray that we'd be able to labor humbly and effectively. And Lord, just steer us as a church to ever be open to your word, to your truth, growing and maturing. Lord, we do pray as we have just sung that there would be. In us, a display of the unity that Christ alone produces by His death, resurrection, and reign. Lord, we come before You, also pleading in behalf of those who know not Christ, and ask that You would, by Your Spirit, open their eyes to the saving grace that is in Jesus. Help us now as we labor in the Word together. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Snowflakes and humans, no two are exactly alike. All people are equally made in God's image, but we are not made equally. A sovereign God ordains for each of us capacities and strengths and even deficiencies that distinguish us from one another. We don't live long before we grumble at the pure injustice of this differentiation. That girl in my class is prettier than I am. My cousin is taller and stronger and faster than me. It takes a little longer, but we soon recognize that we are not as intelligently gifted, as charismatic in personality, as witty as many of our peers. Realizing such differences can spawn discontent and self-pity on the one hand, and pride on the other hand when we compare ourselves favorably with the gifts of others. But maturity begins to dawn when we realize that none of us is a complete package. As we mature, we realize that God has made us all different such that we need one another to form a stronger community through interdependent relationships. Happy is the soul that comes to recognize the beauty of diversity in unity. Well, diversity and unity is a vital feature of our life together in Christ's church as well, but it comes with a twist. When we trust Christ as Savior, we are baptized, indwelt, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit then endows a church's members with different spiritual gifts. But we are empowered by God's Spirit, not so much with differing natural abilities. These we certainly have but with differing capacities to minister God's grace to one another. That's an agenda that is not present in our world. But it is in the church. So yes, there's those natural abilities, and we use those natural abilities to see the cause of Christ go forward. But there's something more. There is a work of the Holy Spirit that is taking place in this congregation... And in the churches that hold truly to the gospel, where the Holy Spirit empowers us with spiritual gifts that are designed to build up Christ's church. Well, as we've come to expect, the Corinthian church was all a mess about this issue. And from what we can gather, their services were highly interactive. It seems that songs were chosen by people, perhaps even composed by them, the previous week. Prophecies were spoken in the assembly. People spoke in tongues. There was verbal response to biblical teaching, not only to the content of what was offered, but some, it, it appears that even judging the content was taking place in the interactive service that they had. None of this was wrong in itself. In fact, it was good. But the Corinthian church seems to have taken things too far, such that their gatherings had become chaotic. Chaotic. And we're actually unfruitful. Remember the statement we looked at last time. Your coming together is actually for the worse rather than for the better. And most significantly to us here is that Paul sees their meetings prioritizing the gift of tongues in such a way that was dividing them from one another, was breaking down the unity of the church, but was also not strengthening it as this gift was intended. So Paul will correct the church in chapter 14, and stay tuned, there's more to come as we move to chapter 14. Some things we won't be able to say today, but we'll pick up there. But he begins his winding way to the correction of chapter 14 in chapters 12 and 13. If, if you're, if, hopefully this hits you, but we've been here before. And that's exactly right. In chapter 10 is where he comes to the conclusion that they should not be eating in pagan temples. But he takes chapters 8 and 9 to work to that conclusion. And so here, chapters 12 and 13, working toward the specific corrections of chapter 14. The church was using Holy Spirit endowments in self-promoting ways that that were failing to strengthen the church. And so Paul works to straighten this all out, starting here in chapter 12, fairly generically, as he looks at the Holy Spirit's empowering work in the assembly. Chapter 12 and verse 1. He begins, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You may see a footnote in your translation of Scripture, but it does not the text actually reads spiritual gifts, but now concerning spirituals. That is, matters pertaining to the Holy Spirit. Gifts is a proper translation in light of uh, of verse 4. That's the context. But uh, that emphasizes here uh, that this is not just what we have as a gift, but what the Spirit is doing among us. So spirituals emphasizes the active empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. Before Paul highlights the activities the Holy Spirit empowers in their church, he pauses here to remind them of their new life in Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, in contrast to the days of paganism. Verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The precise meaning of these verses is a little difficult to discern. The general sense is fairly clear. And that is, he's contrasting here the days when they worshiped as pagans in idol temples. These mute idols, these idols that were not real, were not alive, could not hear or listen or speak. Remember those days, he said, now you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And anyone indwelt by the Spirit of God will never curse Jesus. A pagan could hardly draw any other conclusion but that a crucified criminal was cursed by God. But when the Holy Spirit baptizes a believer, indwells that believer, never again will we think such a thing, that Jesus is accursed. Likewise, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the indwelling Spirit, not in the true sense of the word. Did you hear it today, brothers and sisters? The songs that we were singing are songs of the Spirit of God. Their are songs that empower our soul as our hearts are lifted up and our voices are raised to proclaim Jesus is Lord. That He is King of kings and Lord of lords. That He is Master of all. We gather together to announce this, to proclaim this. And that is an evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. We would be singing a different song if it were not for the Spirit. This generally, I think, is what he's saying. There is no power on earth or goodness in the soul of man that can produce this confession. Jesus is Lord. So I ask you today, do you love Jesus Christ? Do you love him? Do you rejoice to lift up his name and exalt in his presence? If not, if you say, that's honestly not me. The reason is not because the Bible is full of holes. The reason is not that you just can't wrap your mind around such a myth. The reason is that you are spiritually blind and your soul is one vast, hollow space. And it's not until your soul is reborn, it is not until the Holy Spirit fills your being when God breathes His life into your spirit, that you can say Jesus is Lord of all and know that you've never spoken anything more true. I would call you to that response. It is not a response you can self-generate, but it is a response for which you can plead for the grace of God to supply There was a time, says Paul to the Corinthians, you gathered in pagan temples, and what you did there was to do nothing but curse God. It was to do nothing but speak to mute idols. But now you say that Jesus is Lord. His work is evident in your assembly when you so speak. Jesus is Lord. Paul now will tie the discussion of spiritual gifts to the work of the triune God as we work our way through verses 4 and following together. The triune God empowers our service. Notice the Trinity here in in these verses. Verse 4, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Varieties of gifts and varieties of service and varieties of activities are all, in a sense, the same thing. Just saying it again from the angle of the triune God. So, varieties of gifts, the Holy Spirit distributes and empowers a diversity of gifts among the members of the church. One confession, one Holy Spirit, many distinct spiritual gifts distributed. In verse 5, really a repeat of verse 4, but with the Lord Jesus Christ identified as the empowering person. Notice the word service here in verse 5. The purpose of spiritual gifts is to serve the church. Let's get this right. As we move forward together as a church, spiritual gifts are not supplied so that you can have a private encounter with God. Spiritual gifts are given so you can serve your brothers and sisters in the church. Spiritual gifts are not about one's ability, they are about one's ministry. Verse 6, continuing on that same line, there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Holy Spirit, verse 4, Lord Jesus Christ, verse 5, God the Father, verse 6, each does what the other does. All three empower spiritual gifts in the church members so that the church is built up reflecting the triune being. There is diversity in the unity of the triune God. And the church then is to reflect that diversity in unity as we serve one another and build up the body. So here's his thesis, verse 7. Simply said, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The manifestation of the Spirit, I think, is the assembly, as assemblies' spiritual gifts bear witness to the Spirit's active presence among them. As we are taking on activities, as we are taking on service, as we are seeking to build up the body of Christ, not just by natural abilities, but by Spirit-supplied abilities, This evidences the presence of the Spirit among us. We're a different kind of body because of this manifestation. Notice again these activities serve the common good. Let us grasp again that spiritual gifts are designed to benefit others. The common good is no way of speaking about personal self-improvement projects or me and God time. As important as that is, that's not how you talk about a spiritual gift when you use the phrase, the common good. These gifts are intended to show the Holy Spirit's presence and to edify the body of Christ. Corporately together, the Spirit is here, and the body is growing. That's the intention. Okay, Paul, what exactly do you mean by spiritual gifts? This uh, list, I think, that we now encounter in verses 8 and following, is not an exhaustive list. I think it's a representative list. It's also interesting that we cannot determine the precise meaning of each gift. Just let that settle in for a moment. We don't really know what they are in every case. This highlights a significant distinction between their church experience and our own. These gifts were so evident and obvious to the Corinthian church that they're just listed. And we struggle today to figure out precisely what some of them are. But That said, we see then thirdly that the Holy Spirit sovereignly endows us with spiritual gifts. Verse 8. Four to one, these are now examples, illustrations. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. One this, another that. Wisdom, knowledge. The meaning of both of these gifts is highly debated as far as it's the specificity of them, yet there is no shortage of Christians who will tell you exactly what they mean right before they declare that they possess one of these gifts interesting let me assure you that the gift of wisdom and the gift of knowledge is not the ability to find hidden truth on the internet that's not what they are they are not gifts that enable you to determine that whatever resource you happen to pick up is the truth It seems people who are most anxious to tell you that they have the gift of wisdom and that they have the gift of knowledge are the very people who constantly prove to you that they don't. The gifts of wisdom and knowledge contextually are gifts that are exercised in the assembly, not at your computer screen. They are gifts given in the assembly to build it up and to encourage it. We don't know precisely what they, what they were, what Paul had in mind. I think there's a strong case that can be made that they really are connected to the teaching of Scripture. That comes with a knowledge of God's Word, with the wisdom to apply that, but again, we're somewhat in the dark. Verse 9, he continues on, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Faith, this is not saving faith, of course, but not faith at conversion, but the spiritual power to trust God in unusual ways, to depend upon Him for great things. Gifts of healing is fairly obvious to us. An individual who has the gift, the capacity by the Holy Spirit to heal someone of a disease, sickness, or malady. Verse 10, to another the working of miracles To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Miracles. Miracles, as I say so often, it's not that light that stayed green a little longer than you thought. It's not a miracle. Miracles are a temporary intervention of God's power that overrides the ordinary laws of nature in order to highlight his salvation historical activity. Some were gifted with miraculous powers, some with prophecy. More on this later in the series and even today, but I I take prophecy to mean in the New Testament what it meant in the Old Testament. That will divide us as evangelical believers in our day. But I think that the two are the same. A prophecy hinges on direct revelation from God who issues a word of counsel to his people. If that revelation is real, it will be true. Every prophet of every era had to be tested. There are those that are saying in the New Testament we see them testing the prophets. That was always the case. It's not something new in the New Testament. But no genuine prophecy from God who cannot lie will ever be mixed with untruth. My opinion. Some will differ. But I think that's how I would see it. Distinguishing between spirits, the identification of this gift is vigorously debated, It may be coupled with prophecy here as interpretation of tongues is coupled with the gift of tongues. But whatever that is, tongues we are familiar with. There's an intense debate over whether this is a reference to human languages that the person had never studied who speaks it, or if tongues are an angelic language that no human being understands without interpretation. That's a significant debate. The meaning of the word, as it's widely used, is almost always used of a human language. Just the way we use the word language, the French language, the German language, Mandarin, these types of things are how the word tongues was just used. But we've got to choose here. As we look at the New Testament, We see in Acts chapter 2 what appears to be... I mean, you can do some gymnastics with Acts 2 and Pentecost. But what seems to be the straightforward reading of Acts 2 is that people spoke languages they'd never studied and other people were there who heard that message and were converted. That first example of what tongues is, you would have to say there's a reason for thinking differently about it. And some would offer some reasons. But we've got to choose... Either it is a human language known somewhere on the planet, but not in the Corinthian church, and it is true that Paul doesn't note that, or secondly, it's an angelic language no one can know apart from the gift of interpretation. I would land more on the fact that what happened in Acts 2 is what's continuing to happen. It is a known language. In fact, any time we ever see angels speaking, everybody understood them. So the idea of an angelic tongue has to be assumed uh, in, in the conversation. The interpretation of tongues pretty obvious what that gift is. It's the ability to hear that message and to say, this is what the person's saying, even though neither one of you speak that language. How a person knew that they had the gift of interpretation of tongues, how the gift was exercised, we can only imagine. We are not given, Facts on that and I would argue that we don't have the experience of it enough for it to be obvious to all believers but more on that in a moment verse 11 here's the conclusion on this section all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills that is only the spirit of God can empower spiritual gifts in our assembly and he does this by his sovereign choice you don't earn it You can seek a greater gift, certainly. Nothing wrong with longing for that or praying for that. But there is something very wrong with envying others or finding discontent with how God chooses to use us. By His sovereign design, He ordains that the church displays diversity in unity and He sovereignly determines our gifts to that end. My intention, originally, was to carry on from this point through the rest of the chapter today. I think that, rather than doing that, it makes good sense to stop here and talk about gifts in our day in a way that there's just no way around this. It's a divisive topic. We have people who are good people who think differently about this matter. But I think here we'll stop, because what I'd like to do is finish the chapter and say the whole point of this isn't for us to figure out spiritual gifts, it is to talk about this diversity and unity. That's, that's the idea of the passage, the oneness of the body with the individual members that are so unique. And we'll come back to that point, God willing, next week. But I do think this maybe is a strategic place for us to stop and have a conversation together about gifts and the question of whether or not we should expect and seek the continuation of miraculous gifts in our churches today. Or should we recognize that the miraculous gifts are no longer operating in our churches today? This breaks down into a decision between what is called continuationism the miraculous gifts continue and cessationism the miraculous gifts have ceased in the church there can be qualifications there but those two basic ideas are are what we've got to decide e- each one of us must determine what is biblical what is right what is uh, the history of the church So this gets a little academic, but on the other hand, it's very significant to us as a church and to God's people of how we look at this matter. Uh, There's very little debate on the reality of spiritual gifts in the assembly. What we're talking about is the miraculous gifts, the raising of the dead, the healing of the sick, the speaking of a language that you do not know, or a heavenly tongue. That you could not possibly learn these types of miraculous gifts are these to be pursued in the churches today this lays out into uh, five different views hang in there I won't go into too much detail on this but I think it's helpful for you to see yourself on the screen so the uh, first view is Pentecostalism From 1901 until the 1950s, this was really the only camp that claimed miraculous gifts continue in the church today and must be practiced. There are exceptions to that, but generally speaking, this was the only camp that was promoting this. The major error of this camp was its insistence that the baptism of the Spirit comes after conversion potentially. So Christians should be seeking the baptism of the Spirit somewhere down the line after they come to Christ. And the second error that got put with that was, how do we know if you've got Spirit baptism as a Christian? You speak in tongues. So the idea was that everyone baptized by the Spirit would speak in tongues, and then you had Christians who never spoke in tongues, therefore were not Spirit baptized. That was the teaching of Pentecostalism particularly gaining hold in 1900, the last day of 1900, as supposedly miraculous gifts were being displayed. The, the second viewpoint is the, out of the charismatic renewal movement. This began in the late 1950s as particularly tongue-speaking, but also evidences of miracles, were taking place in mainline Protestant churches and in Roman Catholic churches throughout our country and throughout the world. Evangelicals in this movement began to hotly debate the separation of the baptism of the Spirit from conversion and whether or not tongues was the evidence of that. Many of them got this right within the Charismatic Renewal Movement. Many did not. But there was a different wave, a second wave, if you will, in the emphasis the third wave is called the third wave in the 1980s this third strain of continuationists rightly insisted that spirit baptism is the experience of every believer upon conversion and that is indeed what scripture teaches they got that right and understood that not everyone would speak in tongues that's the whole point of the diversity and unity that not everyone would speak in tongues so it was not an evidence of spirit baptism this camp, for instance, John Wimber, Wayne Grudem, John Piper, and our good friend Andy Naselli, along with many others, are in this camp of the third wave. Many in this movement would hold much in common with us doctrinally, and we have the highest respect, they are friends, there are many good people with solid doctrine that hold this view. They just believe that these miraculous gifts are intended for the church today. The next view I would call, and this is my own term, you won't find it in any book, but I think it, it, it helps because it's what I hold. <laughs> so I can name my own movement here, I guess. <laughs> but it, open case cessationism, open case cessationism. <clears throat> this view would hold that God may choose to give someone the ability to heal. He may give a missionary in a remote, unreached area the capacity to speak the language of the people, a language he's never spoken before or decoded. I have no doubt that God could empower a believer to raise the dead. But I don't believe there is anything that would hinder God from granting such gifts to his people today, although I don't believe he's doing so. So I don't see any hindrance in this, I think we would open case consider if you heard of a missionary going to a place and he spoke the language that he had never studied and people were converted, I'm not going to say, no, God can't do that. I'm open to any evidence, but from all appearances, I do not see the church today experiencing the spiritual gifts in a manner that is similar to that of the New Testament church. Some would take this a bit further than I would, and, and I, I just, I, there's nothing I can do here but tell you what I think. It is the nature of the case. We have many differences of opinion and purpose uh, in the evangelical church, but uh, I land at number four. Number five would be absolute cessationism. Some would argue that with the completion of the canon, the New Testament, that all miraculous spiritual gifts were right then and there rendered obsolete. Therefore, the notion that God would grant healing powers or could empower someone to speak in a language they'd never heard is an assault on the sufficiency of the Word of God. I I think we would say it can be, but that it, it necessarily is, I would not go that way. Particularly because this view hinges so directly upon an interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 10 that I think is just misguided and that is that the perfect thing that has come is the completed canon. I don't think that position can be defended, and so I wouldn't hold that view, but all that said, I would land with number four, and I would do so for several reasons. Again, I know this is a bit painstaking and ugly to have one person saying, here's what I think, but I don't know what else you do. This is just the reality of the world that we live in. This is a divisive issue. So I'll just tell you where this particular pastor happens to stand at this particular time. That's as good as I can do. But I think there's a case to make for open-case cessationism along a number of lines, and I'm just going to work through them fairly quickly. The first is the salvation historical clumping of miracles and divine revelation. You can read yourself silly on this point, but I think it is a very valid one. Many assume that miracles happen all the time in the Bible. The whole stretch of the Old Testament, the whole stretch of the New, miracles were happening all the time. This is not the case. Seasons of miracles are lumped together. One of the reasons is we just read the whole Bible and we don't think chronologically with any real precision. We think generally chronologically. But if you look at the era of miracles, they're lumped together in certain places. And those lumpings together are always connected, or generally connected, to fresh revelation. For instance, the era of Israel's deliverance from Egypt and the conquest of the land is coupled to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. For instance, the era of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, clumping together a lot of miracles that kept... the nation from uh, extinction and was linked, isn't it interesting, again, to a revelation of God on Mount Sinai to the prophet Elijah. We would be led to expect then that miraculous powers would attend the ultimate revelation, Jesus Christ. It's interesting how many theologians that we would trust through the centuries have picked up on this theme. John Calvin said, for instance, that it's unreasonable to expect miracles unless there is a new gospel, a new revelation. He linked directly the two together. Hermann Boving drew this very connection to the miraculous powers that accompanied the revelation of Jesus. Clumpings of miracles connected to new revelation, we would expect these miracles to be with Christ in that era. Would we expect them to continue? That's the question. Secondly, the witness of post apostolic church history. The apostolic fathers, these are the, the main writers and leaders of the church that knew the apostles. These church leaders who lived during and slightly after that time supply no clear evidence of miracles extending past the apostles. This is not accepted by everyone, but when you do a deep dive, I haven't done, but have read of those who have, when you do a deep dive into what they're saying, there is an assumption that miraculous gifts continued, but none of these church leaders ever claimed that they did anything miraculous. Nor do they have solid evidence of anyone else who did either. The evidence indicates that miraculous powers ended with the apostles and their delegates. And this was the predominant view of the church up to the 20th century. Read the Reformers. Read, many through history that we would look to as guides and lights along the way, and the vast majority were cessationists. They believed that these gifts ended at the revelation of Christ. When exactly was debated, but somewhere in that era. A third reason is the nature and the ubiquity of New Testament miracles. Ubiquity, they're, they're all over the place. The miracles that we witness in the New Testament are objective, they are total, they are undeniable even to unbelievers. Further, we generally underestimate the number and underrate the extent of the miracles that Jesus and the apostles performed. Heaven had come to earth. The messianic age had dawned. Miraculous powers attested to the seismic shift in redemptive history. What passes as miraculous gifts today is of a far inferior nature than what we witness in the New Testament. The missionaries of Acts 2 evangelized with miraculous tongues and thousands were saved in a single day in Jerusalem. We put that together with the fact that missionaries going to unreached people with undeciphered languages are not receiving this miraculous gift in evangelism. Again, as an open-case cessationist, I'd say it could happen. I don't have any problem with the possibility of that. It's just not the history that we see. In fact, we have had missionary movements that have gone into places utterly dependent on the miracle of tongues and have left disappointed. God did not so supply. Number four, the transitional era of the New Testament church. While I do not believe the completion of the New Testament rendered miraculous gifts impossible or wrong, there is certainly something to say about the state of the church prior to the completion of the New Testament. It's quite obvious why prophecy in tongues would be necessary in the absence of the New Testament, or at least very, very helpful. That's very clear. We are certainly not in that transitional era now with the New Testament completed and having been completed a long time ago. Number five, the continuationist revision of what constitutes prophecy in tongues today. This is not a slam-dunk argument by any means, but it definitely raises the question. What I mean by this is that those who say the miraculous gifts of Revelation continue have to redefine what prophecy is, and I think redefine what tongues are. Tongues become an angelic language no one can understand apart from interpretation. That seems very different than Acts 2. Prophecy becomes something different than prophecy in the Old Testament, now including the possibility of errors. That thinking, that reworking of what prophecy is to be this new concept in the New Testament leads to all kinds of problems in my thinking. But having to rework that what prophecy is indicates, I think, a misguided agenda. We don't need to rework what it meant. We don't need to rework what, what tongues meant or what miracles were performed or what prophecies were given. Prophets don't need to have a decent batting average. If they are receiving direct, miraculous revelation from God, how can it get scrambled in their brain on the way out their tongues? How can it come out slightly wrong and constitute biblical prophecy? I don't see it. It's really a challenge, I think, to that continuationist view. And then number six, the church is built on the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2 and verse 20, and the apostolic office ended around 90 AD. It's common to read Ephesians 2.20 as the apostles' New Testament and prophets' Old Testament, but contextually and really almost universally understood by scholars who understand the language, this is not the case. The apostles and prophets is talking about the New Testament era. They are the foundation of the church. I think the prophets of the New Testament church were receiving revelation from God, were guiding his people in accordance with the apostolic witness. We know that the apostolic office ended. We have confidence in that as a church. I know not everyone agrees with that, but generally that's understood to be the case. That the apostolic office ended, and if the church is built on the apostles and the prophets, we would have to display why it is that prophecy continues to be a foundation of the church today. I don't want to be cynical, but looking at the debates and the difficulties of prophecy in churches today... One would not look at that as a foundational piece, but as a problem. Now, I've not developed any of these six points sufficiently. I'm simply indicating a trajectory of how this pastor thinks. That is all. I could be wrong. Good people tell me that I am. Good people tell us that we are grieving the Holy Spirit. Other good people assure us this is not the case. And I want to say very pointedly, and I hope graciously, where we differ with one another, if I differ with anyone here today, uh, we're together as brothers and sisters. We're striving to know what God has said and what is right there's a way of thinking through this and we have to land on places but we continue to receive one another as I mentioned we have many good friends who would differ on this point but let's ask a little more practically that's a lot of background and you can chew on that differ agree whatever but why does Eden Baptist Church do nothing to help people discern their spiritual gifts why do we do nothing with that Well, I believe we do. What is at issue is the approach. And I think that how we discern our spiritual gifts is in two ways. The first is by getting busy in service. Serve God where he makes it clear and you're on the path to discerning what he's given you to provide to the church. And then secondly, heed the wisdom of others. Do not even think of trying to discern your spiritual endowments autonomously. If you think you have the gift of teaching, you think you have the gift of music, and no one else does, it's unlikely that you're right. (laughs) Everybody's blind. It could be. And time will show. But probably not. Just get busy serving. Inventories that help you discover your gift one afternoon on the living room sofa with a cup of coffee are nearly useless. The apostle does not instruct the Corinthians how to find their gift. Isn't it interesting? This is where the preponderance of emphasis is in our day, is these these surveys that help you discern who you are and all this attention is put into people figuring out their gift, and the apostle says nothing about it. Just get busy serving. Even in ways you don't find comfortable. And it will all take care of itself. I hope I'm not reading too much of my life into this, but I, I think the Lord has given me a gift to teach His word. that's just grace I didn't do anything but what I was so helpful to me was to cross the line in my Christian life where I said I'll do whatever you give me to do and the first thing they gave me to do is to work at an inner-city church to teach Sunday school class to three fourth-grade boys who couldn't have cared less about what I had to say It was a really humble spot. And I didn't enjoy it. And they really didn't enjoy it. <laughs> but I think that's a picture of how we learn who we are and what God wants to do with us. Be available. Be there. Step in. Serve. Ask other people what they're seeing, and the Lord will help us discern. Let us remember that spiritual gifts are not about self-centered, self-serving, individualistic, religious experience. They are about diversity, but toward unity. Their purpose is to edify the church so that we demonstrate that diversity and unity that images our triune God. We're up to something here for the common good. And may we never miss that. The supply is there by the Spirit of God. The voices lifted to say Jesus is Lord is evidence that conversion has happened that the presence of the Spirit is with us, that He's growing His church with all of our warts and troubles and trials. He's building up His people to be stable in the faith, and so we sing that Jesus is Lord, and we serve for the common good, for the edification of the assembly. The supply is there by the Spirit of God. May the Lord enable us to live it out to the edification of Christ's church and for the glory of His name. We will not all see the spiritual gifts the same way. But what we can grasp is this common good and the pursuit of the edification of the church for the glory of God. May that be what we take with us today and into the future. Let's pray. Father, we come before You recognizing that we see through glass darkly We long for the day that we will see you face to face. We do not want to take lightly the accusation that we grieve the Spirit of God, that we are not open to His work. (laughs) But We also recognize, Lord, with the saints of the ages and the centuries who have seen a uniqueness in some of the miraculous gifts, Nonetheless, all of us together as the church is built up striving to be faithful to serve your people. Whether that's by raising the dead or speaking a language we've never spoken or couldn't. Whether that's by the simple actions of one with the gift of helps. Lord, I pray that in your mercy you would build us and deepen us as an assembly. And that we would focus on that common good. That we would recognize the presence of the Spirit among us. That even for those that are hard-baked cessationists, we would never despise or look past or downplay the absolutely vital work of the Spirit of God in our midst. Aid us to this end. Help us to think clearly. May we love one another in unity and continue to grow as an assembly. We lay these requests at your feet, thanking you for your goodness and your mercies to us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.